Hello, and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast. The show for people on the go, who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert talks about Colossians 1, 15-23. In this part of Paul's letter, he focuses on the power and goodness of Jesus, the definitive answer in times of doubt. Let's hear today's message. Whether by reading reports of the nuns, those who say they are not affiliated with any religion anymore, or by the experience you've had with your own family or friends, you are likely aware that we are living in a day where those raised in the church are more and more walking away from the church, deciding it's not worth following Jesus. You're aware of that, are you not? It's not necessarily the experience of our congregation right now, thankfully, but, but we were at a graduation party just yesterday, and I visited with some of our extended family who are in other congregations, and they were lamenting just how few people were in the pews and how much it seems like faith is being let go of by those they care about. We wonder about reasons why this may be, and certainly there are many. You know, reports of the clergy sex scandals have left lots of people going, I'm done. The, the intertwining of our faith and politics, whether the politics of the left or the right, have lots of people going, this simply seems like a way to manipulate my neighbor to get them to vote the way I want them to vote, and I'm done with that. Some look at us and go, well, they're just a a bunch of hypocrites, and they wouldn't be all wrong, would they? My brother has said that of me, right? Well, you don't practice what you preach, and I'm guilty as charged, and then try to share about grace once again. There's all sorts of reasons, but But there's a reason that the letter this morning, the letter to the Colossians addresses that is, in my opinion, honest and authentic and genuine for everyone. For all of us have or will face moments in life where we we face some measure of challenge or suffering that causes us to question God and God's place in our life and God's place in the world, it, it, it nurtures a sense of doubt within us. Everybody has faced this. Philosophers have suggested the doubt can be filtered into one of two categories. It's really pretty simple. I want you to think about a moment like that in your life. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe you went through divorce. Maybe somebody, um, somebody uh, hello, betrayed you. In that moment, doubt is rooted in one of two thoughts. One thought is, I thought God was good, and yet this happened. If God is good, how could he let this happen? And so maybe God isn't as good as I thought he was. That's one category. The second category recognizes or continues to believe that God is good and 
Yet because this, whatever this is, because this happened, God must not be powerful. At least not powerful enough to do something about it. Before, because if God is good and he doesn't like this, then why isn't he doing something about it? You recognize those two? It's because of doubt rooted in one of those two or both uh, places that the Apostle Paul writes to this early church in the city of Colossae and the Spirit speaks to us as well. Words from Scripture that are meant to speak to the goodness of Jesus and the ability or the power of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus, that is the supremacy of Christ, or the power of Jesus in the gospel, the sufficiency of his work on the cross. And he does so in order to stabilize us in moments of doubt, to help us whenever we meet that place in our life where we go, I just don't know if I want to keep walking in this way. And so my hope is we get into this passage, a passage, did you notice? It's pretty deep, right? It's pretty thick doctrinally thick like this is gonna be I've been working hard all week to try to make sure I put concepts down here on the bottom shelf like cookies on the bottom shelf where you can get them I'm just afraid you might have to be 510 to reach this morning it's because of that 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 the apostle writes and the spirit gives the word so that we might be helped in moments of doubt and if you find yourself this morning in a place where you are Plenty happy to be following Jesus. Maybe he will equip you to speak into the lives of others. Your children or grandchildren or a neighbor who might be struggling to grasp the goodness or the power of Jesus and why he's worth following. So, again, we're using this scripture journal we started a few weeks ago. If you don't have one, there are some left in the back. We would love to have you grab one. Get it out Make sure you have a pencil and paper. I have worked hard and will work hard to bring this to you. You also have to work hard to listen, right? Sometimes you might just need to do this this morning or punch your neighbor. That's fine. If you see him drifting, that's a little bit of violence in the sanctuary. It'd be okay this morning, right? I'm going to work hard, but this is, this is a beautiful one and a hard one. So let's pray. Oh, Lord God. Would you speak to us this morning? Make clear who you are and who you call us to be. May these words not be simply academic or theological. May they be personal as you reveal yourself to each one of us who hear. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, notice what we will hear this morning comes right on the heels of a great proclamation, the the proclamation of the gospel from verses 13 and 14 that we lifted up and talked about last week. For Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. This is why you come and worship every morning. And so it's right to... From that, ask the question, well then, who is this Jesus? Who is this one who's delivered us, transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the the kingdom? And that's what this passage is 
all about. I want you to notice that verses 15 through 20 are considered by most one of the earliest Christian hymns. Maybe a hymn that the Apostle Paul wrote. More likely, it's a hymn that the Apostle Paul has adopted and adapted for this letter. That it was a song or a poem or a creed that was already on the hearts and lips of many who followed Jesus. It's important to recognize that because because we know the place that music has in the formation of our theology and in our hope and in our faith. I mean, who's kidding? Nobody remembers a sermon a week or two later. Maybe a phrase from a sermon, right? But not a sermon. That's okay with me. I know that. But it's songs. Songs that move us, especially in challenging moments. On this Father's Day, I was thinking about uh, how the songs of faith have informed my life. I remember one of my favorite memories when the kids were really young. They'd swing on the swing set that's still in our backyard but hasn't moved for years. (laughs) And they'd sing the songs we sang in church. And I'd remember, oh, it's getting into their lives. They would hear. And then as a son... When I knelt at my father's bedside at the moment of his death, I sung songs of faith, the hymns that he had taught me and made sure I learned. It's songs that move us, and that's why it's so important that that Paul has put this song right here for us to recognize. Now, I don't want to get too far down into the weeds, but I just want you to see how it resembles a song. And so look at this slide that is before you. Though they wouldn't have used this terminology back then, you could divide this passage up, verses 15 through 20, as a verse 1, chorus, verse 2. So look at verse 1, verses 15 and 16 mirrors some uh, concepts that you see in verse 2 at the end. Verse 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Near the end, some concepts that mirror that. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the beginning. Verse 1, firstborn of all creation. Second verse, firstborn from the dead. First verse, by him all things were created in heaven and earth. Second verse, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. You see that? Verse 1, verse 2. And like modern-day music, those verses then point to the chorus, and it is the chorus that carries the most important thought. Verses 17 and the first half of 18. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Well, that's what they need to hear, is it not? When your faith is shook, when you're wrestling with doubt, do you not need to hear that Jesus is before all things? And in him all things hold together. That this church of which we are part, he indeed is the head. It lifts up the goodness and the power 
of Jesus. You might go, uh, where? <laughs> I don't see the word good anywhere in that passage. Well, let's, let's consider that together. What is the definition of good? What makes something good? Here's what the dictionary says. Good is to be morally excellent, virtuous, righteous, pious. That's if you're talking about a person. If you're talking about some sort of thing or activity, it could, it's satisfactory in quality, quantity, or degree. The reason I put that before you is because I want you to recognize that the concept of good can only be understood in reference to something else. If something's going to be good, there has to be a standard to which that is being compared. Are you with me? So my son, Owen, 14 years old, he plays basketball, among other things. He's been working on his jump shot a lot in the last, couple, last week or two. He has a standard for what a good jump shot should look like. It's Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry is probably the best shooter in the history of the game. Right, And so he's watching videos of Stephen Curry and trying to make sure that his hand motion, that his body, all of that looks as close as he can make it to Stephen Curry. He's not looking at himself saying, do I feel good about myself? He's looking at himself in relationship to a standard, one of the greatest basketball players in our day. Same thing's true with Bible transcription. Before the days of the printing press, you may know this, before the days of the printing press, the way the Bible was developed and dispersed was that largely monks would take the written word, they would set it down beside themselves, they would take a blank sheet of paper, and they would write word for word what was in this book. When they'd get done with the page, they'd compare the two. How would they determine if what they had done was good? Well, if it matched what they had written from, it was good. If it didn't, good cannot be known apart from a standard. Well, look how verse 17 begins. He is before all things. Jesus is the standard. He was the first. He is the priority. He is the image of the invisible God. Dwell on that for a moment. He makes visible what was otherwise invisible. Verse 18, he is the beginning. Because that's verse 2, that reference is the recreation, the beginning of this new covenant. And going on, verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Which leads us to, to consider the mystery of the Trinity once again. You know the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Which of those is Jesus? Okay, just make sure you're not asleep yet, right? He's the Son, right? The second person of the Trinity. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is at the same time the one who contains the fullness of God. 
He's not one-third of God. He contains the fullness of God and yet is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And you're going, huh? People have wrestled with this through the ages. The early church in wrestling with this penned the Nicene Creed, something we from time to time recite. Look at this phrase from the Nicene Creed written in 325 A.D. It ought to clear it up, I think. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Here it is. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Clear? You're like, uh, I'm trying, right? Yeah, there's this mystery. This mystery that we can't fully understand or grasp, but we, we must hold on to. That Jesus is the very embodiment of God himself. It's an important distinction that we hold on to that others do not. Our, fra- our, our, our Islamic friends, Muslim friends, they recognize Jesus as a great prophet, but they don't see him as God at all. Our Mormon friends... They revere Jesus so much, it's right there in the title of their church. And yet, for them, Jesus and Satan are brothers, both born of the Father. Satan went off track. Jesus shows us the right way. We ought to follow him. It's not what the Bible teaches. Many other people would recognize the historic nature of Jesus and say, yes, he lived. And he lived well. He's a good teacher, somebody we ought to follow. But God? Come on. It's to this line of thinking that C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, look, there is no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, can you imagine you encounter somebody on the sidewalk after church this morning? Maybe it's Don Diller. Don Diller comes up to you and says, hey, I got a little secret I want to tell you. I'm God, right? What are you going to think of Don, right? Are you going to say Don's a great teacher? No, right? You might say Don's a lunatic. You might say Don's a liar. Or based in the evidence of his life and his teaching, you might say he is who he says he is the Lord of the universe, one thing that cannot be true is that one who calls themselves God is merely a good teacher and an example to follow. See that? This passage in Colossians lifts up the goodness of Jesus in the understanding that he is the fullness of God in flesh, given that we might enjoy relationship with God in a way that we could not if he remained invisible and far away. You know, that phrase, image of God, is important. Not only in helping us recognize who Jesus is, but in other ways as well. As you think about that phrase, the image of God, can you think about another place in Scripture where it's used? Who else 
is made in the image of God. You are. I am. Right. Look, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Just so you know, we're not being sexist. Male and female, he created them. Humanity is created in the image of God. It is that that gives us our identity. We mentioned last week, we, we are living in a time where we are wrestling with identity. Who are we and what is good? It is the question that informs so much of our politics and so much of our discussion. What does it mean to be, what is my gender? What is my sexuality? What is my vocation? What does it mean to be in relationship with somebody else? All of those things are identity questions. The holiday we'll celebrate tomorrow, Juneteenth, is all about identity. We're celebrating it because for decades our nation got it wrong. Right? Even though our founders said this in the Declaration, right? You know these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that even though we've recognized in that founding document that everybody is equal and, and has inherent dignity because they are made to reflect the image of God, later on in legislation, it was penned that, that if you had darker skin, you were actually more three-fifths of a person. That it was... Well, because I want to use the word good in my sermon. It was gooder (laughs) to be white, right, than black. We recognize that's wrong now, right? And so we are trying to reconcile that. Not because uh, we've just come up with that idea, but because we look at Jesus. We see the standard and we go, no, 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 no. We need to reflect him more and more. And so that drives us to, to look at all people and go, hey, Regardless of the way they're living their life, I may think some things are right or wrong about the way they're living their life, but who they are, they're created in the image of God. So they have dignity, they demand respect, and I need to treat them as that God has especially created. All right, let's take a breath for a moment. That's a lot of head work, right? Count of five. One, two, three. Okay, ready? Let's keep going. Still in verse 15. We're going to be here a long time, friends, right? That's a joke, kind of. Uh, The firstborn of all creation. Do you see that phrase? What does that mean? I first read it and thought, firstborn, I know that Jesus wasn't created, so why, how could he be firstborn? And I was affirmed in that thought as you keep reading. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. Or verse 20. Through him all things were reconciled or recreated. So what does it mean that he is the firstborn? I want you to understand that firstborn is not about birth order. It's not about creation. Jesus is indeed eternal. He was never created. The term firstborn is about 
rank. It's about status, especially in Hebrew culture. As evidence of that, let me show you from Psalm 89. It speaks to King David, even as it alludes to the coming Messiah. I'll read beginning at verse 25, and then you'll, you'll be able to pick it up with me on the, with the words on the screen. God's word says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, those who know their Old Testament, remember, David had many brothers, right? Where was he in the order of brothers? He was the youngest, right? This is not about birth order. This is about God saying, I have appointed him, and he will be my firstborn. And in so doing, it actually alludes beyond David to Jesus. It's important to recognize that Jesus is the one through whom creation was made. Why? Well, again, remember, he's the standard. He's before all things. If you were going to go to the Toledo Toledo Museum of Art later this afternoon, you might look at a painting. You would have every right to look at a painting and say, I like that. Or I don't like that. What you don't have the right to do, actually, is to say, that's good. Who has the right to say whether a painting is good? Only the artist. For it's the artist who knew in her heart, her mind, and her heart, and her soul, what she was trying to put on the canvas. And so it's only the artist who has the right to say, yes, that's it. Or no, (laughs) I'm going to try again. Jesus is the creator, the artist. He made the world all around us. He made you. He made your internal being. And so we have to learn as we, as we look at the ra- world around us and look at ourselves as well, to not ask the question, do I like it or do I not? But does that align with Jesus? Is that good? For he is above all things, before all things. He's the standard. Make sense? All right, that's one category. The second one I don't think will take quite as long. But it's important for us to recognize it. What if if we do, we look at the world and we understand Jesus as the standard and then we see the world and see that it doesn't measure up. You open the Toledo Blade this morning. Flip to page two, three, four. I forget where it is. It's early on, but not the headline. And you see the headline, at least 41 killed as rebels attack Uganda Square. I didn't read the article, but I'm guessing many of those were children. And we go, 
Why does God allow children to be massacred, to be murdered? What am I supposed to do with that? Maybe he's heartbroken, but he's not able, not powerful enough to do anything about it. Well, the scripture speaks to that as well. Notice, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I don't want to be trite, but it's the, it's the children's song that many of us learned, right? He's got the whole world. Right? The gospel calls us to believe that even if we don't fully understand it as we look at the world. Well, how does he hold all things together? Look at verse 20. It's through him, Jesus. Now that the wording here is tough, so let me just read it. And through him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That somehow, his sacrifice and the cross reconciled all things, not just you and me, all things in heaven and on earth. That word reconcile is slipping out of our vernacular, probably because few of us use checkbooks anymore, at least my age and younger. Bethany, do you use a checkbook ever? No, you don't. But you work in the financial world, so you know what it means to reconcile your checkbook, right? It, we, we, I'll tell you what you already know. You get your bank statement, right, which tells you what came out of the account. You line up your checkbook and your register, and you make sure they match. And if they don't, you have to reconcile it. You have to go figure out what happened? You have to make it right. The scripture says Jesus made it right. He made peace by the blood of his cross. He did it in global ways. He did it throughout the world. But Paul's concern and our concern this morning is with each of us individually. And so he leads into the gospel. If you want to understand how Jesus reconciled us, he says, remember, remember who you were. Verse 21, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Is that true? Of you. Obviously, this is a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about it. Did you do evil deeds? Were you alienated from God? Were you hostile to him in your mind? I think a lot of Americans, a lot of church people sometimes read something like that and think, boy, I don't know what kind of people those, were, those folks were, but that's not me. Just as good can only be known against a standard, so too evil is a concept that can only be defined by a standard. If God is the creator, the one who made you, the artist that had an idea for your life, who has a plan for every minute and everything he has given you, every per, every you know, friendship, every job, every relationship, all the money, all, the, all of it. If he has a plan for that, 
and your life is supposed to represent his plan, what does the painting of your life look like? Before Jesus, mine was a mess. I don't know about you. And I grew up in the church. I never got in trouble as a teenager. I got a speeding ticket one time, but that was about it. I was a good kid. But I had very little interest in seeing God's work worked out in my life. I was alienated from him. And the deeds that defined my life were evil. Not because they were grotesque, but because it was all about what I wanted and not about what he wanted. And friends, that's true of you as well. You can only know the gospel. You can only know the goodness and the power of Jesus in your life once you recognize that. And so I don't want to move on this morning without asking you, have you recognized that? Have you told God, yeah, that's true of my life and I need help? Because that's what the gospel is. It's recognizing that and then asking Jesus to reconcile your accounts. Your life does not match what God intended. How does that change? Well, Jesus paid the penalty by his blood on the cross, thus making peace. He, he puts it in a clear way in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is to say, what we owe for our alienation, our sin, is death. And Jesus paid that penalty. And not only that, he conquered death by raising from the grave. It's a gift. You know, when I give my kids a gift at Christmas, they love to see it under the tree. But could you imagine if they come down on Christmas morning, they see the gift under the tree, and they say, Daddy, 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 that's great. And then they don't open it. They just look at it, they sing about it, but they don't open it. I'm afraid that's the case for too many Christians. That we don't take hold of the reality of the gospel and open it and apply it to our lives. A, a, a preacher I listen to, his name's Alistair Begg. He lives over in Cleveland. He's got a Scottish background and Scottish brogue, so it's not fair. Everything he sounds, everything he says sounds profound and beautiful. He said this, and again, when he said it, it was like, wow. When I say it, it's going to be like, eh, right? But he said this, we are not justified, that is to say, made right with God. We are not justified on the basis of anything done by us. It's not about our works. Nor are we justified on the basis of, it, of anything done in us. Sometimes those moments of doubt, we, we've got these feelings and we think, oh, I must not be a true follower of Jesus or God must not be doing this in me because if so, I would feel this inside. Hogwash, that's a Scottish word, right? That doesn't happen in us. Not done by us, nor done in us, but on the basis of what was done for us. You would say on a hill far away. Because friends, in reality, it really has very little to do with us. It's something Jesus did for us that we're called to believe and have faith in. Faith, for the first time, 
and then faith every day, continually. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 23, that, that he did this so that by his death, I'm on 22 here if you didn't notice, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, not because you actually are by your own merit, but because Jesus has done this for you. If indeed, notice that warning. It's a positive one, but it's a warning. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It's a call for patience. Patience in this day where we're looking around us going, where is God? Is he good? Is he going to do something? Patience that was called for in that first day. Remember these words from Peter to the early church, really suffering. God's word says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. No, instead, he's waiting. Not wishing that any should perish, but all, but that all should reach repentance. That's what he's doing. And so, let's be steady. Let's look to Jesus. I had a conversation with one of my kids. I'm, I'm done after this. Conversation with one of my kids. She used the phrase that annoys me more than any other phrase these days. She used the phrase, I want to be on the right side of history. Have you heard that phrase? I said, honey, what does that mean? <laughs> right side of history. Have you heard that phrase? Now your head, have you heard that phrase, right? Right side, what does that mean? Sounds kind of presumptuous to me. As if in our present day, we can know what will be right according to history. If you lived in the days of Nazi Germany and wanted to be on the right side of history, you likely would have lined yourself up with Adolf Hitler. Because as you looked at the circumstances of the world and the power that he held and the way the war was going, you want to be on the right side of history. You want to be with him. Can't tell in the present day unless you look at Jesus. For friends, Jesus is history. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. Us. The church. And so let's stand with him. And let's run. Run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross so too should we endure suffering. He scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we are living in challenging times. 
just as the church has always shared. We pray, Lord, that you would steady our faith in these days. As we wrestle to hold on to faith in your goodness and in your power, may you fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, who is both supreme and sufficient. May you be our God, and may you enable us to be ready to receive you whenever it is you return. It is in the Lord, name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.